Matthew chapter 9. And page 8 in the back of our Psalter hymnal for our catechism lesson, Lord's Day 1. We'll focus on question and answer 2 for our sermon. Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. The calling of Matthew. And here we find, in many ways, the heart of Christian faith, the heart of the gospel, a picture of what happens to sinners called by grace. Give your attention to God's holy word, Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. And not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then page 8, the back of the Psalter hymnal, our catechism lesson, the Heidelberg Catechism. We will read both 1 and 2 and focus on 2 for our sermon tonight. Question one, Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And believer, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Your congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have here, as, as I have mentioned, really a, a microcosm of Christian calling, of the gospel. 
Sometimes you run across articles or, or things that may say, here are three things you need to know before you start such and such diet. Or here's what you need to know before you uh, go on a trip to this place. And seeking to, of course, acquaint you with the kinds of things that will equip you to sort of go into this new phase of living or this trip or this new kind of eating uh, prepared. And so what, of course, the, the, the catechism is doing here for us tonight is here is what you must know in order to live in the joy of the comfort that we talked about this morning. The, the comfort of knowing that you have a sovereign, loving, and saving God. And really what uh, it breaks down for us, very simply, of course, is you need to know about your sin and your misery. If, if we simply declare that there is grace in Christ without sort of setting the table for what that grace means, then people will not have any sense that they need to be delivered from anything. And, and that is why in, in the preaching of the gospel, there needs to be much time and effort that's given into digging down deep into that very issue, especially in an age where we tend to not see ourselves as, as very sinful or rebellious, that we must labor to remind ourselves how great our sin and, and misery are. And then that brings us then, of course, to the, the, the heart of the matter, the crux of the matter, the cross of the matter, is the cross of Jesus Christ and, and how we are set free and, and delivered. And then how, how do we live in light of that? When, when a sinner comes to Jesus Christ and is forgiven and justified and, and set free from sin and death, he, he or she is not just whisked up to heaven, are they? They remain and God has, has it that they would live in light of what he has done for them. So we thank God. Guilt, grace, and gratitude is what this question is putting before us. That is really what the Christian life is. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. You were guilty in your sin. God saved you by his grace. He calls you to live in gratitude. So first we consider our solidarity with Matthew. How great our sin and misery are. Here in Matthew 9, some of the things that we keep in mind as we have been walking through this gospel together, leading up to this passage, you remember in chapter 8 when Jesus went to, uh, he left Capernaum to go onto the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he called a couple of his followers to, to follow him. And you remember that they said they had things to do. Now, granted, they were very important things to do. I have to go and, and bury my father. But Jesus there in that passage puts his, his lordship in, in, in clarity for us. That there is nothing that takes priority over Christ. And when he calls, he calls as a sovereign, knowing lord. And so when Jesus says, follow me, a disciple of Jesus asks no questions. A disciple of Jesus gives no caveats. But that's in the back of our minds as we come to this passage. That uh, there have been those who say... I think I want to follow Jesus, but, but here's what I want to do first, or here's something I need to take care of first. Secondly, we see that the scribes, the religious class, the Pharisees, have begun ramping up their opposition to Jesus. And that's going to be really center stage for the rest of, of the gospel. Uh, 
The Pharisees will be challenging Jesus. The scribes will be complaining. The kind of the elite ruling religious class will be growing in their opposition to to the Lord. And that brings us then very simply to the man Matthew, the tax collector. Now, a tax collector, as probably most of us know, we've we've heard tax collectors mentioned in, in sermons, probably about Matthew himself. Tax collectors were, were thought of as a special kind of traitor. Traitor, not traitor. <laughs> tax collectors were seen as dishonest and greedy, unpatriotic, right? Kind of a mighty triumvirate of horrible sins. They were chosen from amongst their people, or, or they, would be, uh, they would go into this job from amongst their own people, but they would be seen as pawns of the Roman government, the Roman Empire, who would kind of pick people out from a group and, and make them, give them these government jobs, and they would then, of course, have all of this power to, to increase taxes as, as they wanted, these skimming off the top, and then their, the Roman governors over them would be demanding how much they need skimmed off the top, and so Exorbitant taxes were kind of a normal thing in that time of life, and it's hard for you to to relate, I know. And so what does this tax booth represent? Jesus sees Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and because of the, the uniqueness of the tax collector sin class, that it was they were just a special kind of of, of person kind of seen beyond beyond the pale of of normal living. And Jesus sees this man, he meets him in the very place where his sin and his sinfulness was most pronounced. Isn't that kind of interesting? He doesn't meet Matthew, the the tax collector, somewhere else. He meets Matthew, the tax collector, sitting in the tax booth. It's almost as if he's sitting in his sin. You catch somebody in the act. In that sense, you, can sort of, you, you almost feel for the tax collector, the, the kind of hatred and, and vitriol. Now, of course, most of them were doing quite well, so maybe we, they didn't need our pity. But their very occupation was sort of sitting in the, the, what people would see as filthiness. A terrible occupation, a terrible life to live. And Jesus encounters him here. And we'll see, what we'll see is that this has a parallel for us in how sinners encounter the Savior. No one encounters Jesus the Savior as a pure person. We are all sinful and miserable. We also consider Matthew's presentation of himself in in Mark and Luke uh, the name of Matthew is Levi. And many people, there were, there were two names often. There's been discussion. Is this the, the name that, that Jesus gave Matthew when he called him? That, that may be. I, I tend to think that Matthew is sort of presenting himself here as the, the author of the Gospel of Matthew. Presenting himself as, in a sense, as sinful as possible. He, he's giving us the name that he would have used as a Roman tax collector or a tax collector for for the Roman government. This would have been the name that was more recognizable to 
the Romans. It's his less Jewish name. The name Levi, would, it smacks of, of some sense of Jewish religious standing. You think of Levi and the, the, the Levitical priests, and that would highlight sort of his, his tribal background, perhaps. But he doesn't do that. One commentator says this, the story shows that even hated tax collectors may have a place among the disciples of Jesus. And that there, there is no need to hide their shameful past since faith does not look to the greatness of believers but to the greatness of the Lord to whom all believers owe their life and pardon. He's not hiding his past. He's, he's not uh, putting a nice coat over anything, painting over anything. He's saying, yes, this is what I am. Tax collectors, publicans, publicani, reminds us, and this is why I, I had a plant in the congregation tonight for our sing-along. Lord, like the publican, I stand. Because that is what is going on here. We need to see that all of us are like Matthew. And when we come before God, if it's in and of ourselves or we encounter the Savior Jesus, there, there is no hiding from our sin. And what we see about the glory of the gospel is that we are not supposed to pretend that our sin is not there. If we acknowledge who we truly are, it magnifies the sense of need that we have for Christ. Lord, like the publican, I stand and lift my heart to thee. Thy pardoning grace, O God, command, be merciful to me. My guilt, my shame, I all confess. I have no hope or plea. We sing those words, but how often do we say, there is not a shred of actual merit righteousness in me. Nothing in me can merit anything of salvation before God. It's all of his grace. I have no hope or plea, but Jesus' blood and righteousness be merciful to me. So do we know how great our sin and misery are? It ought to be our prayer that God would make that known to us, that our reliance and our faith might be increased. It's littered throughout Scripture, Ecclesiastes 9. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The journalist Malcolm Muggeridge said, the depravity of man is at one, as at the same time, the, the most empirically verifiable fact in history, yet it's also the most intellectually resisted. John Newton made a great point. He said this, but that we are so totally depraved is a truth which no one ever truly learned only by being told it. Indeed, if we could receive and habitually maintain a right judgment of ourselves simply by what is declared in Scripture, it would probably save us many a mournful hour. Then he says this, But experience is the Lord's school, and they who are taught by him usually learn that they have no wisdom by the mistakes they make, that they have no strength by the slips and falls they meet with, Thus, by degrees, they are weaned from leaning on any supposed wisdom, power, or goodness in themselves. And they fall to the truth of our Lord's words, Without me, you can do nothing. Experience is the Lord's school. Maybe we think we're quite sanctified, quite 
patient, quite filled with grace. Then we get married. And then in our marriage, we realize I'm not as patient as I thought. I'm not as eager to forgive as I thought. And experience is the Lord's school. We find we're lacking in wisdom. We're lacking in grace. We're lacking of all of these things. Our life is interesting. I was thinking about this this week. John Calvin had, had several uh, daily prayers that he had to kind of outline his day. And in, in all of these prayers, or in many of these prayers, during the day, the sun is up and, and, and it's light outside. And he has probably four or five different prayers where he talks about the light outside as being the light of Christ uh, and the, the, the effulgence of the Holy Spirit. That the, the gospel of Christ has lit up the world. And then at the end of the day, when it's dark out, uh, he, says, he says this, Since this day has not passed without my having in many ways offended you through my proneness to evil, in like manner as are all things now covered by the darkness of night. In other words, he's saying, my sinfulness has tainted everything I've done just like the darkness has now enveloped everything around me. We're coming into church as it's getting dark out and just darkness sort of covers everything. And Calvin was making the point, that's, that's the way in which our sinfulness infects everything. The Apostle Paul called himself the, the, the chief of sinners. And so the, the application point for this, the theological point that we need to make uh, is, the, is this. We don't cleanse ourselves. No one cleanses themselves, perfects themselves before coming to Jesus Christ. That's not the picture of faith and forgiveness. We come to God in the fullness of our need, fully acknowledging who we are, in a sense, sitting in our sin, just as Matthew was found by the Lord. That is how sinners are saved. Not pretending that we're something that we're not. We come to God resting on Jesus Christ. We come to God resting in the Savior. Matthew encounters the, the only one through whom forgiveness can be found. Westminster Confession, chapter 15, says, As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. So we repent of our sins. We do not hide them. And we come to God in Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of sinners. So that's our second point, the Savior of sinners, how we are delivered. We're delivered in Christ. Jesus communes with sinners in this passage. Sharing meals is uh, a big thing in Scripture and, and just in human experience. Right? To share a meal with someone is a, a special thing. And Jesus is here eating with tax collectors and sinners. Genesis 18, the Lord eats a meal with Abraham. Exodus 24, verse 11, the elders of Israel, we read, they beheld God and they ate and drank. Isaiah 55, the Lord describes his goodness in terms of eating and drinking. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Isaiah 25 
picturing the blessedness of being with God in eternity, again pictured as a celebration meal. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the people. He will swallow up death forever. Revelation 19. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the point that we see here is that Jesus saves, God saves in Christ unto true communion and fellowship. When God saves a sinner, he doesn't wipe him clean and then send him off somewhere. He welcomes him to himself. So we talked this morning about the doctrine of justification. We talked about the family room and the courtroom. Justification is the courtroom. Adoption is the family room. And you need both. It's perhaps more pleasant to think about the family room than the courtroom, but you need both because everyone will have his day standing before his maker. But we think tonight about the family room or the dining room. And that's what the doctrine of adoption is, is that God welcomes you to himself in such a way. He doesn't just make friends with you. He adopts you to himself and brings you into his family. And he gives you a seat at his table. And he says, eat with me, dine with me, feast with me, live with me. So that we cry out, Abba, Father. John Owen says this, Truly, for sinners to have fellowship with God, the infinitely holy God, is an astonishing truth. I mean, even just that. Think about that. We have fellowship with God. Sinners. An infinitely holy God. If it doesn't astound us, we don't have it right. It's also important to see that Jesus comes as a doctor. He doesn't come as, in, the, in uh, today's world, we have these emotional uh, support companions that, you know, sneak onto airplanes. They get onto airplanes. People say, well, I, I need this. It's my emotional support, whatever, dog, cat. And that's sort of, I, I need something with me that makes me feel good about exactly who I am at all times. And Jesus comes to the tax collectors and sinners as a physician, as a doctor, and that's what, you, that's what we need to see. And sometimes people misunderstand it, that, that he's almost kind of going to the sinner and encouraging or affirming everything that they are. And there's no hint in this passage that that's what's going on. He says he's coming to heal them. One commentator says this, when he associates in intimate terms with people of low reputation, he does not do this as a hobnobber, a comrade in evil, or birds of a feather flocking together, but as a physician, one who, without any way becoming contaminated with the diseases of his patients, must get very close to them in order that he may heal them. He comes as a doctor to heal. He also rebukes the Pharisees. He says, it's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. In other words, he's saying, on your own terms, I should be doing what I'm doing because they're offended. Why are you with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you eating with them? Why do you associate with them? Jesus says, according to the way that you live your life, you think that they are sick. You think that they are sinful. So doesn't someone need to go to them? Don't they need to be healed? Don't they need uh, a doctor so that they may be healthy? On your own terms, I'm doing what one would think should be done. 
But then he also rebukes them in another way. In a sense, he says, but here is what you really are. You are adulterous, covenant breakers who mock God with your false piety. Jesus says, go and learn what this means. And that would have grated against them greatly. That, that, that would have just set them on edge. Because for Jesus to say, go and learn what this means, is suggesting to them that they do not understand this passage of Scripture, which he quotes from Hosea. And Hosea is the prophet uh, where, the, the, the book in the Old Testament, where God is essentially giving his divorce case to the people of Israel. You've been unfaithful. You've been adulterous. I'm going to send you into exile. And Jesus is saying that the Pharisees are in line with the people of Hosea's day who were being indicted by God. Don Carson says, The Pharisees were not so healthy as they thought. More importantly, they did not understand the purpose of Jesus' mission. Expecting a Messiah who would crush the sinful and support the righteous, they had little place for one who accepted and transformed the sinner and dismissed the righteous as hypocrites. He goes on, There's no suggestion here that Jesus went to sinners because they gladly received him. Rather, he went to them because they were sinners, just as a doctor goes to the sick because they are sick. So this tells us what, what, what do we need? We need to not be like the Pharisees. We need a contrite heart. We need to acknowledge our weakness. We come to Jesus in our need. Richard Sibbs in his classic, The Bruised Reed, says this. Self-emptiness prepares us for spiritual fullness. You need to be empty before God can fill you with his grace. He also says this. Weakness, with acknowledgement of it, is the fittest seat and subject for God to perfect his strength in. For knowing our infirmities drives us out of ourselves to him in whom our strength lies. So we need a contrite heart before God. Humility in our sin. Not hiding our sin. Not trying to perfect ourselves before we come to him. But simply coming to him. We also need a heart that is rightly postured towards the good of our neighbor. One theological point that we make before we make our close tonight is what the Reformed have called the free offer of the gospel. Because of what goes on here in this passage in Matthew 9, it tells us that what the church is to be doing is going throughout the world and proclaiming that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ and calling people of all stripes, of all colors, from every tribe and tongue and nation to come to the Savior and to follow Him and to trust in Him for the forgiveness of their sins. The Canons of Dort, the second head of doctrine, Article 5, speaks about this. The mandate to proclaim the gospel to all. He says this, It is the promise of the gospel that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and people to whom God in his good pleasure sends the gospel. Proclaim it! What do we publish and declare? 
we declare that God desires, even in the midst of knowing the sinfulness of sinners, he declares or he desires that they come and wash themselves in the blood of Christ, that they sit down at his table, that they feast and commune with him in the most intimate and loving fellowship. That is the heart of the Christian faith. That's what it's all about. Frederick uh, Buchner says this. He says, there's little we can point to in our lives as deserving anything but God's wrath. Our best moments have been mostly grotesque parodies. Our best loves have been almost always blurred with selfishness and deceit. But there is something to which we can point. Not anything that we ever did or were, but something that was done for us by another. Not our own lives, but the life of one who died in our behalf and yet is still alive. This is our only glory and our only hope. And the sound that it makes is the sound of excitement and gladness and laughter that floats through the night air from a great banquet. We're not told, but maybe when Jesus and Matthew had that great banquet, maybe many of those tax collectors came to follow Jesus and to know him. And just as Matthew did, Matthew gives us the response of faith, how we are to thank God for such deliverance. In, in Mark and Luke, we read that Matthew leaves everything behind. He leaves it all behind. And that's what followers of Jesus do. We gladly leave our sin and our stain and our sinfulness. We leave it behind to follow him because of the joy of knowing that he has saved us from our sin. His response is immediate and without caveat. It's different than what we see earlier in chapter 8, isn't it? Jesus says, follow me. And what does he do? He follows him because his heart has been grabbed by grace. Matthew also shows a compassion for the lost. Again, he, he hosts the banquet that others might see Jesus. And then he uses his gifts or, or abilities that he has in order to serve his God. Matthew's work as a tax collector would have made him highly trained in keeping records, being trained in the Greek language, very experienced in writing. And so Matthew takes all that he knows, all that he can do, and he orients it then to the glory of God. He uses what, what he can do for the glory of God. And that's the response of faith. Leave it all behind. Follow Jesus. Have a compassion for the lost. Be taken with the wonders of the glory of grace. And then use everything that you have to serve your God. Whatever God has allowed you to do, use that to serve him. Every day. We must know, in order to live and die in the joy of the comfort of Christ, how great our sin and misery are how we're set free, and how we thank God for such deliverance. If we do know that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ, and that that sinner, the foremost of sinners, the chief of sinners, is you as you stand before God, and you run to him and rest in him, and allow your heart to be gripped by grace, and then you will, by his power, serve him in thankfulness all of your days. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we give you thanks and praise and adoration. We thank you for the glories of the gospel. And we ask, O oh Father, that you would impress these things upon our minds and our hearts tonight. And we ask uh, that you would be pleased uh, to fit us for eternity, to work in us faith and repentance, to not think that we ought to perfect or cleanse ourselves before we come to Christ, but simply to come in our need, knowing that you establish, you cleanse, you save. 
And thus we give ourselves to you and to those promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We respond.